0: Chapter Nine of Riders of the Purple Sage. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Laurie Ann Walden. Riders of the Purple Sage by Zane Gray. Chapter Nine Silver Spruce and Aspens. The rest of that night seemed to venters only a few moments of starlight, a dark overcasting of sky, an hour or so of gray gloom, and then the lighting of dawn. When he had bestirred himself, feeding the hungry dogs and breaking his long fast, and had repacked his saddlebags, it was clear daylight, though the sun had not tipped the yellow wall in the east. He concluded to make the climb and descent into Surprise Valley in one trip to that end he tied his blanket upon ring and gave whitey the extra lasso and the rabbit to carry then with the rifle and saddle slung upon his back he took up the girl she did not awaken from heavy slumber That climb up under the rugged, menacing brows of the broken cliffs, in the face of a grim, leaning boulder that seemed to be weary of its age-long wavering, was a tax on strength and nerve that Venters felt equally with something sweet and strangely exulting in its accomplishment. He did not pause until he gained the narrow divide, and there he rested. Balancing rock loomed huge, cold in the gray light of dawn, a thing without life, yet it spoke silently to Venters. I am waiting to plunge down, to shatter and crash, roar and boom, to bury your trail, and close forever the outlet to deception pass. On the descent of the other side, Venters had easy going, but was somewhat concerned because Whitey appeared to have succumbed to temptation, and while carrying the rabbit was also chewing on it. And Ring evidently regarded this as an injury to himself, especially as he had carried the heavier load. Presently he snapped at one end of the rabbit and refused to let go, but his action prevented Whitey from further misdoing, and then the two dogs pattered down, carrying the rabbit between them. Venters turned out of the gorge and suddenly paused, stock still, astounded at the scene before him. The curve of the great stone bridge had caught the sunrise, and through the magnificent arch burst a glorious stream of gold that shone with a long slant down into the center of Surprise Valley. Only through the arch did any sunlight pass, so that all the rest of the valley lay still asleep, dark green, mysterious, shadowy, merging its level into walls as misty and soft as morning clouds. Venters then descended, passing through the arch, looking up at its tremendous height and sweep. It spanned the opening to Surprise Valley, stretching an almost perfect curve from rim to rim. Even in his hurry and concern, Venters could not but feel its majesty, and the thought came to him that the cliff-dwellers must have regarded it as an object of worship. Down, 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 Venters strode, more and more feeling the weight of his burden as he descended, and still the valley lay below him. As all other canyons and coves and valleys had deceived him, so had this deep nestling oval. At length he passed beyond the slope of weathered stone that spread fan-shape from the arch, and encountered a grassy terrace running to the right, and about on a level with the tips of the oaks and cottonwoods below. Scattered here and there upon this shelf were clumps of aspens, and he walked through them into a glade that surpassed, in beauty and adaptability for a wild home, any place he had ever seen. Silver spruces bordered the base of a precipitous wall that rose loftily. Caves indented its surface, and there were no detached ledges or weathered sections that might dislodge a stone. The level ground beyond the spruces dropped down into a little ravine. This was one dense line of slender aspens from which came the low splashing of water, and the terrace, lying open to the west, afforded unobstructed view of the valley of green treetops. For his camp, Venters chose a shady, grassy plot between the silver spruces and the cliff. HERE IN THE STONE WALL HAD BEEN WONDERFULLY CARVED BY WIND OR WASHED BY WATER SEVERAL DEEP CAVES ABOVE THE LEVEL OF THE TERRACE. THEY WERE CLEAN, DRY, ROOMY. HE CUT spruce boughs AND MADE A BED IN THE LARGEST CAVE, AND LAID THE GIRL THERE. THE FIRST INTIMATION THAT HE HAD OF HER BEING AROUSED FROM SLEEP OR LETHARGY WAS A LOW CALL FOR WATER. HE HURRIED DOWN INTO THE RAVINE WITH HIS CANTEEN. It was a shallow, grass-green place, with aspens growing up everywhere. To his delight he found a tiny brook of swift-running water. Its faint tinge of amber reminded him of the spring at Cottonwoods, and the thought gave him a little shock. The water was so cold it made his fingers tingle as he dipped the canteen. Having returned to the cave, he was glad to see the girl drink thirstily. This time he noted that she could raise her head slightly without his help. "'You were thirsty?' he said. It's good water. I found a fine place. Tell me, how do you feel? "'There's a pain here,' she replied, and moved her hand to her left side. "'Why, that's strange. Your wounds are on your right side. I believe you're hungry. Is the pain a kind of dull ache, a gnawing?' "'It's like that.' "'Then it's hunger.' Venters laughed, and suddenly caught himself with a quick breath and felt again the little shock. When had he laughed? "'It's hunger,' he went on. "'I've had that gnaw many a time. I've got it now. But you mustn't eat. You can have all the water you want, but no food just yet.' "'Won't I starve?' "'No, people don't starve easily. I've discovered that. You must lie perfectly still and rest and sleep for days.' "'My hands are dirty. "'My face feels so hot and sticky. "'My boots hurt.' "'It was her longest speech as yet, "'and it trailed off in a whisper. "'Well, I'm a fine nurse.' "'It annoyed him that he had never thought of these things. "'But then, awaiting her death and thinking of her comfort, "'were vastly different matters. "'He unwrapped the blanket which covered her. "'What a slender girl she was.' No wonder he had been able to carry her miles and pack her up that slippery ladder of stone. Her boots were of soft, fine leather, reaching clear to her knees. He recognized the make as one of a bootmaker in Stirling. Her spurs that he had stupidly neglected to remove consisted of silver frames and gold chains, and the rowels, large as silver dollars, were fancifully engraved. The boots slipped off rather hard— She wore heavy woolen riders' stockings, half-length, and these were pulled up over the ends of her short trousers. Venters took off the stockings to note her little feet were red and swollen. He bathed them. Then he removed his scarf and bathed her face and hands. "'I must see your wounds now,' he said gently. She made no reply, but watched him steadily as he opened her blouse and untied the bandage. HIS STRONG FINGERS TREMBLED A LITTLE AS HE REMOVED IT. IF THE WOUNDS HAD reopened, A CHILL STRUCK HIM AS HE SAW THE ANGRY RED BULLET-MARK, AND A TINY STREAM OF BLOOD WINDING FROM IT DOWN HER WHITE BREAST. VERY CAREFULLY HE LIFTED HER TO SEE THAT THE WOUND IN HER BACK HAD CLOSED PERFECTLY. THEN HE WASHED THE BLOOD FROM HER BREAST, BATHED THE WOUND, AND LEFT IT UNBANDAGED, OPEN TO THE AIR. HER EYES THANKED HIM. LISTEN, HE SAID EARNESTLY. "'I've had some wounds, and I've seen many. "'I know a little about them. "'The hole in your back has closed. "'If you lie still three days, "'the one in your breast will close, and you'll be safe. "'The danger from hemorrhage will be over.' "'He had spoken with earnest sincerity, almost eagerness. "'Why do you want me to get well?' she asked, wonderingly. "'The simple question seemed unanswerable, "'except on grounds of humanity.' But the circumstances under which he had shot this strange girl, the shock and realization, the waiting for death, the hope, had resulted in a condition of mind wherein Venters wanted her to live more than he had ever wanted anything. Yet he could not tell why. He believed the killing of the rustler and the subsequent excitement had disturbed him. For how else could he explain the throbbing of his brain, the heat of his blood, the undefined sense of full hours, charged, vibrant with pulsating mystery, for once they had dragged in loneliness? "'I shot you,' he said, slowly, and I want you to get well so I shall not have killed a woman. But for your own sake, too.' A terrible bitterness darkened her eyes, and her lips quivered. "'Hush,' said Venters. "'You've talked too much already.' In her unutterable bitterness he saw a darkness of mood that could not have been caused by her present weak and feverish state. She hated the life she had led, that she probably had been compelled to lead. She had suffered some unforgivable wrong at the hands of Aldring. With that conviction Venters felt a shame throughout his body, and it marked the rekindling of fierce anger and ruthlessness. In the past long year he had nursed resentment. He had hated the wilderness, the loneliness of the uplands. He had waited for something to come to pass. It had come. Like an Indian stealing horses, he had skulked into the recesses of the canyons. He had found Old Ring's retreat. He had killed a rustler. He had shot an unfortunate girl, then had saved her from this unwitting act, and he meant to save her from the consequent wasting of blood, from fever and weakness. Starvation he had to fight for her and for himself. Where he had been sick at the letting of blood, now he remembered it in grim, cold calm, and as he lost that softness of nature, so he lost his fear of men. He would watch for Oldring, biding his time, and he would kill this great black-bearded rustler who had held a girl in bondage, who had used her to his infamous ends. Venters surmised this much of the change in him. Idleness had passed. Keen, fierce vigor flooded his mind and body. All that had happened to him at Cottonwoods seemed remote and hard to recall. The difficulties and perils of the present absorbed him, held him in a kind of spell. First, then, he fitted up the little cave adjoining the girls' room for his own comfort and use. His next work was to build a fireplace of stones and to gather a store of wood. That done, he spilled the contents of his saddlebags upon the grass and took stock. His outfit consisted of a small-handled axe, a hunting knife, a large number of cartridges for rifle or revolver, a tin plate, a cup, and a fork and spoon, a quantity of dried beef and dried fruits, and small canvas bags containing tea, sugar, salt, and pepper. For him alone this supply would have been bountiful to begin a sojourn in the wilderness, but he was no longer alone. Starvation in the uplands was not an unheard of thing. He did not, however, worry at all on that score and feared only his possible inability to supply the needs of a woman in a weakened and extremely delicate condition if there was no game in the valley a contingency he doubted it would not be a great task for him to go by night to Oldring's herd and pack out a calf the exigency of the moment was to ascertain if there were game in surprise valley whitey still guarded the dilapidated rabbit and ring slept near by under a spruce Venters called Ring, and went to the edge of the terrace, and there halted to survey the valley. He was prepared to find it larger than his unstudied glances had made it appear. For more than a casual idea of dimensions, and a hasty conception of oval shape and singular beauty, he had not had time. Again the felicity of the name he had given the valley struck him forcibly. Around the red perpendicular walls, except under the great arc of stone, Ran a terrace fringed at the cliff base by silver spruces below that first terrace sloped another wider one, densely overgrown with aspens, and the center of the valley was a level circle of oaks and alders with a glittering green line of willows and cottonwood dividing it in half. Venter saw a number and variety of birds flitting among the trees to his left, facing the stone bridge, an enormous cavern opened in the wall, and low down just above the tree-tops. He made out a long shelf of cliff-dwellings, with little black staring windows or doors. Like eyes they were, and seemed to watch him. The few cliff-dwellings he had seen, all ruins, had left him with haunting memory of age and solitude, and of something past. He had come, in a way, to be a cliff-dweller himself, and those silent eyes would look down upon him, as if in surprise that after thousands of years a man had invaded the valley." Venters felt sure that he was the only white man who had ever walked under the shadow of the wonderful stone bridge, down into that wonderful valley with its circle of caves and its terraced rings of silver spruce and aspens. The dog growled below and rushed into the forest. Venters ran down the declivity to enter a zone of light shade streaked with sunshine. The oak trees were slender, none more than half a foot thick, and they grew close together, intermingling their branches. "'Ring came running back with a rabbit in his mouth. "'Venters took the rabbit and, holding the dog near him, stole softly on. "'There were fluttering of wings among the branches, "'and quick bird notes, and rustling of dead leaves and rapid patterings. "'Venters crossed well-worn trails marked with fresh tracks, "'and when he had stolen on a little farther he saw many birds and running quail, "'and more rabbits than he could count. "'He had not penetrated the forest of oaks for a hundred yards,' had not approached anywhere near the line of willows and cottonwoods which he knew grew along a stream. But he had seen enough to know that Surprise Valley was the home of many wild creatures. Venters returned to camp. He skinned the rabbits and gave the dogs the one they had quarreled over, and the skin of this he dressed and hung up to dry, feeling that he would like to keep it. It was a particularly rich furry pelt with a beautiful white tail, Venters remembered that but for the bobbing of that white tail catching his eye, he would not have espied the rabbit, and he would never have discovered Surprise Valley. Little incidents of chance like this had turned him here and there in Deception Pass, and now they had assumed to him the significance and direction of destiny. His good fortune in the matter of game at hand brought to his mind the necessity of keeping it in the valley therefore he took the axe and cut bundles of aspens and willows and packed them up under the bridge to the narrow outlet of the gorge here he began fashioning a fence by driving aspens into the ground and lacing them fast with willows trip after trip he made down for more building material and the afternoon had passed when he finished the work to his satisfaction Wildcats might scale the fence but no coyote could come in to search for prey and no rabbits or other small game could escape from the valley. Upon returning to camp, he set about getting his supper at ease, around a fine fire, without hurry or fear of discovery. After hard work that had definite purpose, this freedom and comfort gave him peculiar satisfaction. He caught himself often, as he kept busy round the campfire, stopping to glance at the quiet form in the cave, and at the dog stretched cozily near him and then out across the beautiful valley. The present was not yet real to him. While he ate, the sun set beyond a dip in the rim of the curved wall. As the morning sun burst wondrously through a grand arch into this valley in a golden slanting shaft, so the evening sun, at the moment of setting, shone through a gap of cliffs, sending down a broad red burst to brighten the oval with a blaze of fire. To Venters, both sunrise and sunset were unreal. A cool wind blew across the oval, waving the tips of oaks, and while the light lasted, fluttering the aspen leaves into millions of facets of red, and sweeping the graceful spruces. Then with the wind soon came a shade, and a darkening, and suddenly the valley was gray. Night came there quickly after the sinking of the sun. Venters went softly to look at the girl. She slept, and her breathing was quiet and slow he lifted ring into the cave with stern whisper for him to stay there on guard then he drew the blanket carefully over her and returned to the campfire. though exceedingly tired he was yet loath to yield to lassitude but this night it was not from listening watchful vigilance it was from a desire to realize his position the details of his wild environment seemed the only substance of a strange dream he saw the darkening rims the gray oval turning black the undulating surface of forest like a rippling lake, and the spear-pointed spruces. He heard the flutter of aspen leaves and the soft, continuous splash of falling water. The melancholy note of a canyon bird broke clear and lonely from the high cliffs. Venters had no name for this night-singer, and he had never seen one, but the few notes, always peeling out just at darkness, were as familiar to him as the canyon silence. Then they ceased, and the rustle of leaves and the murmur of water hushed in a growing sound that Venters fancied was not of earth. Neither had he a name for this, only it was inexpressibly wild and sweet. The thought came that it might be a moan of the girl in her last outcry of life, and he felt a tremor shake him. But no, this sound was not human, though it was like despair. He began to doubt his sensitive perceptions, to believe that he half-dreamed what he thought he heard. Then the sound swelled with the strengthening of the breeze, and he realized it was the singing of the wind in the cliffs. By and by a drowsiness overcame him, and Venters began to nod, half asleep, with his back against a spruce. Rousing himself and calling Whitey, he went to the cave. The girl lay barely visible in the dimness. Ring crouched beside her, and the patting of his tail on the stone assured Venters that the dog was awake and faithful to his duty venters sought his own bed of fragrant boughs and as he lay back somehow grateful for the comfort and safety the night seemed to steal away from him and he sank softly into intangible space and rest and slumber venters awakened to the sound of melody that he imagined was only the haunting echo of dream music he opened his eyes to another surprise of this valley of beautiful surprises out of his cave he saw the exquisitely fine foliage of the silver spruces crossing a round space of blue morning sky and in this lacy leafage fluttered a number of gray birds with black and white stripes and long tails they were mocking birds and they were singing as if they wanted to burst their throats venters listened one long silver-tipped branch dropped almost to his cave and upon it within a few yards of him sat one of the graceful birds venters saw the swelling and quivering of its throat in song he arose and when he slid down out of his cave the birds fluttered and flew farther away venters stepped before the opening of the other cave and looked in the girl was awake with wide eyes and listening look and she had a hand on ring's neck mocking birds she said yes replied venters and i believe they like our company where are we? Never mind now. After a little, I'll tell you. The birds woke me. When I heard them and saw the shiny trees and the blue sky, and then a blaze of gold dropping down, I wondered. She did not complete her fancy, but Venters imagined he understood her meaning. She appeared to be wandering in mind. Venters felt her face and hands, and found them burning with fever." He went for water, and was glad to find it almost as cold as if flowing from ice. That water was the only medicine he had, and he put faith in it. She did not want to drink, but he made her swallow, and then he bathed her face and head, and cooled her wrists. The day began with the heightening of the fever. Venters spent the time reducing her temperature, cooling her hot cheeks and temples. He kept close watch over her and at the least indication of restlessness, that he knew led to tossing and rolling of the body, he held her tightly, so no violent move could reopen her wounds. Hour after hour she babbled and laughed, and cried and moaned in delirium. But whatever her secret was, she did not reveal it. Attended by something somber for venters, the day passed. At night in the cool winds the fever abated, and she slept. The second day was a repetition of the first, On the third he seemed to see her wither and waste away before his eyes. That day he scarcely went from her side for a moment, except to run for fresh, cool water, and he did not eat. The fever broke on the fourth day, and left her spent and shrunken, a slip of a girl with life only in her eyes. They hung upon Venters with a mute observance, and he found hope in that. To rekindle the spark that had nearly flickered out, to nourish the little life and vitality that remained in her, was Venter's problem. But he had little resource other than the meat of the rabbits and quail, and from these he made broths and soups as best he could, and fed her with a spoon. It came to him that the human body, like the human soul, was a strange thing, incapable of recovering from terrible shocks. For almost immediately she showed faint signs of gathering strength. There was one more waiting day, in which he doubted, and spent long hours by her side as she slept, and watched the gentle swell of her breast rise and fall in breathing, and the wind stir the tangled chestnut curls. On the next day he knew that she would live. Upon realizing it, he abruptly left the cave, and sought his accustomed seat against the trunk of a big spruce, where once more he let his glance stray along the sloping terraces. She would live and the somber gloom lifted out of the valley, and he felt relief that was pain. Then he roused to the call of action, to the many things he needed to do in the way of making camp fixtures and utensils, to the necessity of hunting food, and the desire to explore the valley. But he decided to wait a few more days before going far from camp, because he fancied that the girl rested easier when she could see him near at hand and on the first day her languor appeared to leave her in a renewed grip of life. She awoke stronger from each short slumber. She ate greedily, and she moved about in her bed of boughs. And always, it seemed to Venters, her eyes followed him. He knew now that her recovery would be rapid. She talked about the dogs, about the caves, the valley, about how hungry she was, till Venters silenced her, asking her to put off further talk till another time. She obeyed, but she sat up in her bed, and her eyes roved to and fro, and always back to him. Upon the second morning she sat up when he awakened her, and would not permit him to bathe her face and feed her, which actions she performed for herself. She spoke little, however, and Venters was quick to catch in her the first intimations of thoughtfulness and curiosity and appreciation of her situation. He left camp and took Whitey out to hunt for rabbits. Upon his return he was amazed and somewhat anxiously concerned to see his invalid sitting with her back to a corner of the cave and her bare feet swinging out. Hurriedly he approached, intending to advise her to lie down again, to tell her that perhaps she might overtax her strength. The sun shone upon her, glinting on the little head with its tangle of bright hair and the small oval face with its pallor, and dark blue eyes underlined by dark blue circles. She looked at him, and he looked at her. And that exchange of glances he imagined each saw the other in some different guise. It seemed impossible to Venters that this frail girl could be Oldring's masked rider. It flashed over him that he had made a mistake, which presently she would explain. "'Help me down,' she said. "'But are you well enough?' he protested. "'Wait a little longer.' "'I'm weak, dizzy.' "'but I want to get down.' "'He lifted her—what a light burden, now!—and stood her upright beside him, "'and supported her as she essayed to walk with halting steps. "'She was like a stripling of a boy. "'The bright, small head scarcely reached his shoulder. "'But now, as she clung to his arm, the rider's costume she wore "'did not contradict, as it had done at first, his feeling of her femininity. "'She might be the famous masked rider of the uplands. "'She might resemble a boy.' but her outline, her little hands and feet, her hair, her big eyes and tremulous lips, and especially a something that Venters felt as a subtle essence, rather than what he saw, proclaimed her sex. She soon tired. He arranged a comfortable seat for her under the spruce that overspread the campfire. "'Now tell me everything,' she said. He recounted all that had happened from the time of his discovery of the rustlers in the canyon up to the present moment.' "'You shot me, and now you've saved my life?' "'Yes. After almost killing you, I've pulled you through.' "'Are you glad?' "'I should say so.' Her eyes were unusually expressive, and they regarded him steadily. She was unconscious of that mirroring of her emotions, and they shone with gratefulness and interest and wonder and sadness. "'Tell me about yourself?' she asked. He made this a briefer story, telling of his coming to Utah, his various occupations, till he became a rider, and then how the Mormons had practically driven him out of Cottonwoods, an outcast. Then, no longer able to withstand his own burning curiosity, he questioned her in turn. "'Are you Aldring's masked rider?' "'Yes,' she replied, and dropped her eyes. "'I knew it. I recognized your figure, and mask, for I saw you once.' yet i can't believe it but you never were really that rustler as we riders knew him a thief a marauder a kidnapper of women a murderer of sleeping riders no i never stole or harmed any one in all my life i only rode and rode but why why he burst out why the name i understand oldring made you ride But the black mask, the mystery, the things laid to your hands, the threats in your infamous name, the night-riding credited to you, the evil deeds deliberately blamed on you and acknowledged by Rustler's, even Oldring himself. Why? Tell me why. I never knew that, she answered low. Her drooping head straightened, and the large eyes, larger now and darker, met Venters with a clear, steadfast gaze in which he read truth. It verified his own conviction." "'Never knew? That's strange. Are you a Mormon?' "'No. Is Oldring a Mormon?' "'No. Do you care for him?' "'Yes. I hate his men, his life. Sometimes I almost hate him.' Venters paused in his rapid-fire questioning, as if to brace himself to ask for a truth that would be abhorrent for him to confirm, but which he seemed driven to hear. "'What are—what were you to Oldring?' Like some delicate thing suddenly exposed to blasting heat, the girl wilted, her head dropped, and into her white, wasted cheeks crept the red of shame. Venters would have given anything to recall that question. It seemed so different, his thought, when spoken. Yet her shame established in his mind something akin to the respect he had strangely been hungering to feel for her. "'Damn that question! Forget it!' he cried, in a passion of pain for her and anger at himself." But once and for all, tell me. I know it, yet I want to hear you say so. You couldn't help yourself? Oh, no. Well, that makes it all right with me, he went on, honestly. I i want you to feel that, you see, we've been thrown together, and and I want to help you, not hurt you. I thought life had been cruel to me, but when I think of yours, I feel mean and little for my complaining. Anyway, I was a lonely outcast. And now... I don't see very clearly what it all means, only we are here, together. We've got to stay here for long, surely till you are well. But you'll never go back to Aldring. And I'm sure helping you will help me, for I was sick in mind. There's something now for me to do. And if I can win back your strength, then get you away, out of this wild country, help you somehow to a happier life, just think how good that'll be for me. End of chapter 9